0: I am willing to wager twenty thousand pounds that I will make a tour of the world in eighty days or less.
1: You accept? Don't I accept, I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to Eighty Days and Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland. And in this episode, we'll be talking about Djibouti, a small nation located on the northeast coast of the Horn of Africa. Bordered by Eritrea to the north, Ethiopia to the west, Somalia to the south... Djibouti lies on the west side of the Bab el-Mandeb Strait at the narrowest point of the Gulf of Aden. Around 30 kilometers across from the strait lies Yemen. This choke point into the Red Sea, which overlooks the approaches to the Suez Canal, has long made Djibouti a desirable location for naval bases. Dominated by two main groups, the Afar and the Issa Somali people, Djibouti today is balanced between these two factions, having endured a protracted civil war in the wake of winning its independence from France in 1977. Occupying a total area of around 23,000 square kilometers or 9,000 square miles, Djibouti is the third smallest country in continental Africa, and today has a population of around 880,000, the vast majority of whom live in the capital city of Djibouti City. Nearly 94% of the population is Muslim, while the remaining 6% are Christian, and the official languages are French and Arabic. Djibouti today attracts plenty of foreign investment and aims to become Africa's Dubai. So uh, let's kick it off by foreshadowing some of the stuff we're interested in talking about today.
2: Uh, Mark, how about you go first? I was reading through this timeline of, of one of the areas of, of uh, Djibouti's history that, that I have and I came across this name and I was like, oh, he doesn't sound very really interesting. I, mean, I kind of deleted his, his section from, from my notes. And then I read on and uh, I went back and I reinstated him because he's a, he's a uh, writer, drug runner, possible slaver, I think? I think he's been accused of such. So yeah, he, he's, he's a pretty insane character who just lands in the middle of uh, uh, my, my, one of my Djibouti sections. So I'm looking forward to talking about him.
0: Uh, Joe, what about you? I
2: think
1: what I'm going to say here is that uh, right right towards the end, we're going to see a, a family who is famous for all the wrong reasons have a really mad dream to, to, to link continents oh via Djibouti. And you'll definitely recognize the surname
2: deliceps oh no no he
1: he divides continents Uh, so yeah so that'll be a nice surprise when we get there right okay nice anyway it'll be it was mad It was one of the things you're gonna read and going, how is this a thing and will it actually happen
0: okay uh i've got a couple actually that uh just greedy if you guys remember our panama episode and the the Horrible failed conquest of of the Scottish, the New Caledonia uh, colony that they attempted there. Oh yeah, albeit yeah, a tragic, yeah. Yeah. it was it was also quite a quite a funny uh, story. <laughs> funny for the people who
2: didn't die. Only for the
0: people that didn't perish yeah. and yeah, and end up having to sell their country yeah. to the British Crown. Yeah, there's a similar story in this episode about a a Russian uh, conquest to Djibouti, which I'm not sure either of you will have heard of. It's a tiny blip in the in the history of this country, but it's a it's a rather rather funny uh in hindsight expedition yeah and also there's a apparently a demon island here as well so, uh, reputed to be haunted so that's kind of cool <laughs> let's start out with some early prehistory Mark, do you want to do you want to kick us off with that
2: sure uh so uh little little people behind the curtain really hard to research this place oh we oh, should god it's really we really small we touching
0: this at the top actually yeah it's it, this is i think we've collectively agreed that this is probably the m- the most difficult oh, episode yeah. that we've, ha- we've had to research in our entirety of doing this podcast. It's, for some reason, a black hole for sources. Each of us, despite having very different uh, periods of time in which, in which to to research. And very uh, different yeah. approaches. And to, very different to approaches to, to that research. research. Yeah, we found it extremely difficult across the board to get any definitive um, history of Djibouti. Kind of so Things that are specific we... to Djibouti particularly.
2: Yes, we we kind of thought this would be a sort of an easier one because it is a quite young country in mm-hmm. many ways, and, and like even like colonially, it was pretty pretty uncomplicated and stuff. Mm-hmm. But no, no, it's nope. a, a real real there's pain there, in the butt. There's just to, nothing to out there for
0: Djibouti apparently. So
2: yeah. So so for, for, forgive me how I start my section. Wikipedia. <laughs> so uh, Wikipedia in its inimitable and very poorly referenced way. Uh, suggests that there has been human habitation of Djibouti for at least 12,000 years. Now, I couldn't find a flippin' thing to substantiate that. There was no references for that number. Uh, It's a lovely, nice, round factoid, uh, which is why I repeat it. But I I did also find that the uh, highest point in Djibouti, uh, which is a a stratovolcano uh, called Musa Ali... What? um, Volcanoes too? Uh, its last eruption was twelve thousand years ago, so mm. I'm gonna guess somewhere someone got a little confused and equated volcanoes with people, uh, volcano rights, etc. I, I I don't know. <laughs> uh, honest to God, I have no idea why they said twelve thousand years. But it's probably just worth mentioning that uh, in 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 a in the lack of ar- archaeological evidence to back up what I'm saying, people have kind of always been around this area. We're talking about generally East Africa. You mentioned that the neighbourhood they're in of you know. Uh, somalia and ethiopia and eritrea pretty pretty tasty neighbors um is,
0: is this more or less where, where humans are meant to start kind of this that's is it. yeah so that's that's my understanding too yeah
2: it's it's first peoples like it's 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 this is where we began so I, i'm not gonna so, go so along with folk twelve thousand years. There pretty early uh, if, i'm in, gonna say in, we were always there yeah. you know i'm just you know it realistically it's a very small area they mightn't have hung about all that much, but they probably they popped in. I'm sure. And I
1: suppose something worth worth us saying is that any concept of the particular borders that are Djibouti now being anything discrete is French colonialism onwards. So yeah, everything yeah, before
0: yeah. that kind of washes across the different tribal areas and in the Horn of Africa, it's the modern day borders don't exist until, as you say, kind of the French
2: colonial period, which is the 1800s or thereabouts. 1800s, yeah. yeah so
1: so there's going to be a lot of spillage
0: yes
2: indeed so get it, getting to actual archaeological evidence um most of what i saw extended back to about kind of 2000 bc 1000 bc thereabouts i did find some weird evidence that a us military uh, group is doing archaeology in djibouti they didn't really de- report anything of what they found uh, but uh, more as to why they're loitering in Djibouti a bit later on. But uh, so the, the first glut of archaeological stuff I found is all about the Asgumathian culture, okay. uh, who were named after the, the, the first site uh, that evidence was found of them. Uh, and kind of since the 2000s, so like really recently, there's been a series of finds of, you know, cairns and stone circles and fish ponds uh, and, and various kind of burial sites. That's a new one. And... Yeah, so like they they kept referring to the Asgamathians as Neolithic, which I guess means that there wasn't a Bronze Age, wasn't a Stone Age. They just you know.
1: Neolithic means like new Stone Age, like the kind of new Stone Age, more but I more mean, advanced stone tools.
2: But I always thought that Neolithic was a lot further before that. But I mean, I I guess not. They're they're Neolithic people. Oh, so um, you
1: mean Neolithic in in like a thousand BC is quite late to be Neolithic?
2: That that was my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's
1: fair. That's fair.
2: Because, you know, in in Europe, you're already kind of getting into Bronze Age times and and so on. So, uh, you know, I guess they didn't have a lot of bronze. As I mentioned, they're they're called the, the Asgumathi. And there's quite a lot of rock art that's been found from that time, which is pretty impressive. Uh, I'd, I'd recommend you to to check out some, some of the pictures of that. Uh, they're all localized in the northwest of Djibouti. All of these rock art sites, which kind of suggests that that was in some way important, whether it be, you know, a settlement or potentially like a trading post, uh, you know, a confluence of um, migratory a, paths or something. A lot of Djibouti
1: is kind of deserty, right?
2: That's it so. so you wouldn't expect people To be hanging around all that long
1: And the, the the current groupings there Would be pastoralists So like herding cattle and stuff Wouldn't lend itself to the most Desertified
0: parts of the country Even to this day I believe Only um, I think up to 4% of land is arable
2: So yeah Not a lot of farmers around here Right yeah. okay. So that, that's an interesting point Because I think that it, it, From the engravings and so on It, it suggests a mix Because they, they show quite a lot of animals They show antelope, giraffe cows without humps and then they show kind of more developed uh they show like dromedary camels and more stylized cows so i think there's there's a suggestion from the evidence that you know it, it might actually portray some lower level agricultural kind of development but as you say it wasn't really central to, to what was happening just to mention also the uh a burma site it was only recently discovered in in 2008 by a french archaeologist who have a hi- historical interest in the area, let's say. They were carrying out a survey and they found these carvings in a in a massif, uh, in a, a compact group of mountains, and they have animals that are no longer indigenous to the area, which suggests mm. that the climate has changed dramatically over the millennia. Uh, as as desolate as it is now, it, it suggests maybe it wasn't always quite so bleak. So it might make sense that, you know, if there's some um, uh, evidence of uh, of kind of domesticated animals, which is something that the artists thought to show, Uh, that that might be kind of indicating that actually, you know, there was a bit of uh, farming happening uh, Mm. back in the way back. And there's also interaction shown between people and animals and a suggestion that that could be, you know, rituals or magical practices but really, they're just kind of guessing um also depictions of warriors uh holding bows and arrows could be ceremonial could could be showing that they were a slightly more militaristic culture uh lots of lots of exciting guesses we can make as to as the things they wrote down.
1: Did Do they have those cool daggers there's these gile daggers are a really typical style of curved dagger in in the region, uh which look quite terrifying uh
2: Ah, uh, I don't recall seeing any,
1: so just. Mentioned them now. Uh, quite ceremonial, quite quite distinctively shaped. Cool. And you wouldn't want to be on the, the business end of one.
2: Last thing I'll mention about the Asgarmatians is that there is also um, evidence of their inhabitation of this Gulf, which might have been used for the collection of salt. Oh, Djibouti is used to collect salt. I think later on in in this future, but there is some evidence that uh, it it might have been used for that as well, and that you know it was a place of fishing. And you know, there, there's some evidence that. For whatever reason, the Azkumathi were were using this Gulf quite a lot, and we're hanging around. So it was either salt, or fish, or just watering holes, or or whatever. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, th- there's a, that's a very relevant area as well. One of the
0: lakes I read actually is one of the saltiest lakes in the whole world, and I, oh, I wow. believe is the the saltiest lake aside from the, the Dead Sea. Uh one in Antarctica, I believe. Uh, oh, right, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, more than the Dead Sea, I think. Saltier than the Dead Sea, yeah. So. Yeah, that, that's
1: uh, La Casale, which is, I think, the third lowest place on earth as well.
0: Yes, yes, it is. Wow.
1: So it's a real, real low point for African geography. Sure. <laughs> uh, Very good. Very good. Um, uh, it, it, it looks fascinating.
2: So around the time of, that the Asgumati were, you know, obviously there in Djibouti, I'm, I'm going to mention this other place because it's, it's one of these ones that's kind of uncertain as to where it was, but Djibouti maybe was where where this was. It's the land of Punt. Mm. Uh, which is referred to quite a lot in in, in Egyptian writing. Uh and they they they're, they're, they're semi obsessed talking about the land of Punt as almost like a Kind of like an El Dorado, but one that they also definitely went to and visited and refer to it quite a lot. Uh, but they, they got there by boat. It was known as the Land of the Gods, which suggests it's to the east of where uh, the Egyptian culture was based. They're quite sun, sun-centric. Because the yeah. sun rises in the east, exactly. They they went there and they brought back, you know, flora, fauna, what have you. Uh, but no one knows where it is. Most people have kind of come to the conclusion that it was in around the Horn of Africa, so either Somalia but also kind of Djibouti area Uh, although some have also suggested it was actually further east and onto the Arabian Peninsula or further east including Sri Lanka but also probably definitely not Sri Lanka that seems too far yeah Yeah. exactly. so I just wanted to mention that there
1: should should we just paint a picture for people of of the Horn of Africa in case they're as unfamiliar with it as we were a while ago.
2: Well, I mean, ge- geographically, it's the the kind of far, far eastern point of 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 Africa. So, about if you think like half the way down.
1: So I think everyone knows the Red Sea comes down. Yeah. Between Africa and the Middle East, and we're kind of talking about the the the, the little kink in the end of of that nib of the African side.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, the the elbow pit. Yeah. It's
0: yeah. I guess what you would call maybe like the shoulder of Africa mm. on the right the side horn, of the continent perhaps. is is kind of like yeah. the. The Horn of Africa is what it's supposed to be called, but yeah, I mean, if you if you're if you if you're
1: not familiar with that term, but Djibouti's right on the
0: right on the 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 pointy bit, as it were. Yeah, so if you're coming down through the Suez Canal and then down through the through the Red Sea, you'll pass like within what is it like fifteen twenty kilometers of Djibouti. And you're right. Uh, it's a it's a strategic, as we mentioned in the intro, like a choke point right there.
1: North of it is Eritrea. Yes. West of it and inland is Ethiopia and south and east is is Somalia. Yeah.
0: And across the Strait is Yemen.
1: So that's kind of where we're at. And so Somalia and Ethiopia are kind of big players in all the history that's to come because there's always been those cultures have always been there in some shape or form.
2: Yeah and and we'll you know in the future of Djibouti it will be called French Somaliland yeah. at one point just kind of acknowledge that that's kind of the dominant culture but uh, you know Egypt uh, just to kind of talk about the the the, the legend uh, that that was mm. that it like it's just up the coast so mm. it and, and you know Egypt was very influenced by kind of Nubia which I think was Sudan essentially below it yeah and just a bit further down you're into that kind of Djibouti Somalia, kind of zone. So, yeah, you know, it's 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 definitely possible that they the is interact. So
1: people are having a punt and saying it was it was Djibouti.
2: Oh, oh. well, also it was, it's probably worth mentioning actually that uh, a modern province of of Somalia or Somaliland land. Uh, let's let's not get too uh, hepped up in the kind of modern yes. politics of Somalia or what they're calling themselves. But one of the big provinces is called Puntland. Okay. Uh, in, in kind of acknowledgement of you know we are punt. So um. That, that's worth mentioning. Moving onwards, uh, leaving, leaving behind the more legendary stuff of, of Puntland, we get on to the Aksumite Empire, who were kind of the local top dogs, and we assume they were in Djibouti as well, from uh, about 100 AD up, up till about 900 or so. They were centred on the city of uh, Aksum, which I think is in Ethiopia. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. The, the civilization started off in actually 400 BC, gradually gained power, rose to prominence, and took in Djibouti, Sudan, Eritrea, Yemen, uh Somalia, Ethiopia and even Saudi Arabia apparently um, mm-hmm. they, they were such a sizable force that they get referred to quite a lot in, in Roman writings So people were very aware of this uh, of this empire and this culture And they particularly rose to prominence as I, as I understand it, as, a, as a sort of a trading empire Because they've traded in ivory with the Romans They're referred to by Ptolemy and Pliny So they're, they're, they're well known They outlasted the old Roman Empire uh, and traded with the Byzantines as well. Hmm. Also tra- traded with India and the Mediterranean, as well as ivory, which I mentioned. Also tortoiseshell, gold, emeralds, and and various kind of stones and minerals that, An were, exo- that were
1: exotic, uh, exotic trade
2: goods. Fa- fancy
1: stuff, yeah, fancy stuff. The kind, of, the kindest of Europeans would have only gotten from Africa.
2: It was a mix of African trade, but also um, given that they were linked to India, it was almost, I guess, like a a supplementary trade route to the Silk Road. Hmm. So you know, it was. The other way, uh, which was only really then opened after the the um, Suez Canal. Uh, but like, it's yeah. the same kind of route we're talking about here.
1: Just a bit overland.
2: So Aksum uh, figures in the history of the region pretty heavily. Uh, and the Queen of Sheba uh, was, was actually from from Aksum culture. Allegedly. Uh, allegedly. Uh, and also Aksum uh, was an early adopter of Christianity in, in the 300s. Uh, yeah. So they they're, they become Christian. Actually.
1: Yes, but I was like from yeah the fourth century on, it became a Christian empire and kind of morphed into the predecessor state for the Ethiopian empire that was to come. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was a, a longstanding, massive e- Christian empire in the heart of Africa. That was never to be colonized.
2: There's Ethiopian uh, Orthodox as a mm. sort of a subset of Christianity, and there's there's churches still standing today from from that uh, that tradition. Um, they they also had their own their own language um, called the Gaez script, uh, which mm. I am certain that I'm mispronouncing, uh, which is also known as Ethiopic. The, the empire itself was originally polytheistic and Judaic, but before converting to Christianity in 325 under Emperor. Azana. Uh so uh well done him, I guess. So mentioned the that Axum it had this kind of um architectural signifier of these kind of uh columns, these these huge obelisks. Uh and I think there's still some around today. I've certainly seen pictures of them. I don't know if they're recreations or if they're they're the originals, but uh they're they're pretty impressive. Uh 33 meters high, held up by uh uh kind of weights underground to keep them erect. Um and then in their kind of later years, as, as ever with Empire, it, it slowly declined. Basically, they kind of came up against this massive cultural uh, headwind. Let's say uh, cool, exciting trend that was sweeping, sweeping the area. <laughs> uh, 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 Islam. Islam started to become really, really important in the area. And that that seems to have been it for, for the old Aksumites. Yeah, ah, it'll never catch on.
1: Uh, the- Salam alaikum. Mm. If 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 the British get their their hello, maybe the Arab uh, wave of conquest should should get its own klaxon.
2: The 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 of alaikum of yeah. Uh, conversion. Yeah,
1: in your best Mecca accent.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, East Mecca though. Don't don't confuse uh, me with those West Mecca guys. Ooh. Anyway.
1: Uh, so I think that is my cue that's to take it, over. That's your cue. Um. So yeah, as I said, like you've got this this big Christian uh, empire that's a big player in the area, and the Horn of Africa actually is where the first Muslims in Africa are found. So they were re- there were some really early adopters of Islam because you can practically see Yemen.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, I mean it's what what do we say? Thirty kilometers away oh, across the water. So uh,
1: and you know as you said, the, the Queen of Sheba, the legendary Queen of Sheba was. A consort of King Solomon in in Israel, you know, it's sort of trade and commerce and communication between the Arabian Peninsula and and this part of Africa was routine. Yeah, uh, yeah. What I didn't know about though was that have you ever heard of the term the the Hijra in in Islam? It's it's when uh, no? Muhammad and his his companions fled Mecca and went to Medina.
2: Oh, fun- funky cold or other or otherwise. Hmm? Funky Gold Medina. Never mind. <laughs> um,
1: so that's an important, an important moment in in the development of 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 Muhammad's religious movement. Um, but there was a thing called the first Hijra, which I'd never heard of, which was a a kind of a smaller exile situation where some of his his companions fled Mecca because their families were threatening them because they were part of this cool new trend. Um, and they weren't down with the polytheism of their parents, so uh, that was a problem. And a lot of them fled across the strait to Axum. Okay. And they were taken in by the king, they were protected, and this is around 613, 615 AD. And the king kind of recognised that maybe their beliefs weren't so different to his. You know, they had some stuff to say about Jesus that he didn't disagree with. They liked Mary. Deadly. You know, they were monotheistic. And so he was like, yeah, I'll protect you from your your... Weird relatives who want to kill you for monotheism, okay. uh, and I suppose that it's kind of a an overlookable uh, detail that the the Ethiopian Christian emperors were like were, you know, gave refuge to early Muslim refugees, which is kind of a, was a surprise. The,
2: the, are you telling me they're recognizing their, their, their many many similarities as opposed to focusing on their tiny differences? That just makes me mad as hell, <laughs> Joe. Mad <laughs> as hell.
1: This is like during the lifetime of the prophet. There were there was Islam in. The Horn of Africa. Holy flip. That's surprising. All right. Then soon after the the hijra to Medina, more refugees came here. And there are sort of shrines and and stories of of saints or whatever the correct term is in, in Islam who were there at this early point. But importantly, in 825, so a little later, you start to get real missionary activity. Arab merchants are a big part of, you know, they're seen in all the ports along this coast and they bring with them... Missionaries and, and their new religion, uh, and it was embraced quite widely along the along the coast.
2: I I know I've I've embraced missionary activity in my time. Anyway, sorry, Jesus. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry, you Mark. You phrase it the, like that the, the, the place I can think of.
0: the place is called Djibouti, and you haven't joked about that yet. But you you managed to make a missionary
2: uh, joke. I
1: mean, come yeah, on. I, I'm, I, I'm I'm kind of disappointed in you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah. I, I like Djibouti as much as oh, I like okay. Gifronti, Uh um, right?
0: That's... About time. <laughs> All right. Had to get that out of the way at some point.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Th- thank you for indulging me. Uh, <laughs> pl- please, please continue telling us about the birth of Islam, <laughs> Joe.
1: But basically, yeah, Islam was, was very widely adopted by, by the ethnic Somalis in the region, of, of which there were many tribes, including those who would later become the Issa group who are there today, and the Afars.
2: So they both come from this time.
1: They, them, they or their predecessors are both bopping around the region. Okay, cool. Um, Some of the names may have shifted a little bit, but you know, it's it's only twelve hundred years ago. Ethnic groups tend not to crop up out of nowhere. Yeah. It's and it seems the Afars may have been among the first Africans to adopt Islam wholesale. So really, Djibouti and its neighboring, like I I think Eritrea is mostly Muslim as well. Yeah. And Somalia for sure. So kind of the coast became Muslim while the inland stayed christian and there's been a lot of dispute back and forth about that it seems that most of the place names in djibouti are are afar in in origin obviously not all of them but quite a lot which suggests they might have been in that particular couple of square kilometers of country a bit longer maybe though i'm sure people would dispute that and uh, i just came across the the idea that the, the afars claim descent from from arabs oh yeah uh, through a mythic yemeni ancestor Although, as a, according to this source I was reading, they
0: differ racially, linguistically and culturally. So
2: so, uh, so that, that source isn't feeling it, basically. No.
0: So pretty much in every way that matters. Well, I suppose yeah.
2: the, it's not unlike yeah. what
1: we saw in Western Sahara, where um, there was this kind of prestige associated with having an, an Arab ancestor.
2: Oh, yeah. So yeah. tribes
1: would kind of say, sure. oh, I mean, yeah. obviously we're mostly from around here, but our, our grandfather was such and such been such and such who who was right. a friend of the cousin of the son of muhammad's neighbor and that means we're better than you you know that you that... know
2: weird yeah. it's it's weird actually that like that wasn't in in europe well in europe you know, it was like... uh, troy
1: it was always trying to go back to troy
2: but i i mean like well you know i'm, I'm henry the eighth i'm a bit of a fat lout and i kill all my wives but you know obviously i'm Saint peter's like grand 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 Oh <laughs> You know something like that like, yeah. it, we, well, I think the
1: Merovingians Claimed to be descended From David Oh did they Yeah And the Romans <laughs> Tried to be Trojan But you know They weren't Okay So yeah Arab traders Strengthened the Islamic Influence in the area And a, a Really important town Is a place called uh, Zela, Which is a Somali Deer town Deer being a Clan I think Somali oh, okay. clan uh, I struggle with the terminology Of clan Tribe okay. Family a Subgroup But you know group and zila is now just across the border into what's what's currently maybe called somaliland
2: we're we're not getting into it
1: um, which is a bit of what what's definitely called somalia
2: we're, we're not uh, uh, as as long as i'm as a part of this podcast we ain't doing somalia we're just not doing it to ourselves yeah no it's too complicated too sad so yeah. no I think we've mentioned it before that we have, a, we have
0: a few places that are on our on our, our list of red lines, as no. it were. Uh, and yeah, that definitely is, should be one of them.
2: Israel has no. an interesting story to tell. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Northern Ireland has a no. checkered past. No, no. Uh,
1: anyway, so Zayla has an interesting thing in it called, called the Mosque of the Two Kiblas. So the Qibla is the, the, the notch in a mosque that points at Mecca. Okay. T- tells you what direction to pray. In early Islam, however, they prayed towards Jerusalem or possibly the the birthplace of of Abraham. Um, it kind of moved around a little bit until they settled on Mecca, and the Kaaba okay. as the direction to point. This mosque Masjid al-Kiblaitain is so old that it had both regimes in operation.
2: Both pointing regimes. So that
1: That's kind of cool. Yeah, no, it's nuts. And the Greeks, I think, talked about it. Avalites was what they called it, which is a city-state trading with Egypt and Phoenicia. So Greeks were aware of, of Zila. In the 9th or 10th century, it became an important uh, Islamic center of culture and trade and the seat of, of what was called the Kingdom of Adal. This this became an, an important kingdom. Uh, al Yaqabi, an Abbasid historian from the Middle East, described there being Muslims all along the northern Somali coast with Zila as their capital. And reckoned the city was ruled by either Arabized Somalis, or Somalized Arabs. So take your pick. Okay. And there was regular wars and skirmishes with with Abyssinia. All right. Kind of with a Islam on the coast, Christianity in the in the mountains. Yeah. Okay. In 1287, uh, and reigning until 1410, the Ifat Sultanate uh, came into control of this region. It was ruled by the Walashma dynasty, and comprised much of Djibouti, parts of Ethiopia. And northern Somalia and was also centred around Zila. So Zila is the kind of key point just across the border, but you know, the hinterland is Djibouti. The the the, the kind of founding Sultan, Umar Balashma, was kind of trying, he wanted to unite all the Muslims in the same way that the Ethiopian emperors were uniting all the Christians at the same time period into a kind of a religious a religious face-off, which is always fun. Yeah. And there was this interesting development where the Ethiopian emperor got annoyed at the Egyptian Rulers who are the Mamluks, okay, for oppressing the Coptic Christians, really, and so he threatened. He said, "If you don't stop oppressing our our cousins or our brother, yeah, brother Christians, we will oppress the Muslims that are under our suzerainty. Oh, namely yeah. the Djibouti and Eritrean Somali. There's that word, um, yeah. and also uh, divert the course of the Nile, which I think is a big threat." <laughs>
2: Which upset the
1: Egyptians That's a little. Insane. Okay, <laughs> what are they
2: talking about?
1: Uh, and obviously the the Ifat sultanate, who because I think the sultanates were kind of nominally answerable to the to the emperor. Okay, but it wasn't a direct unitary state. Like it's just emperor outranks sultan. Yeah, uh, but they obviously didn't fancy the whole uh, you know genocide thing that was being being talked about. Uh, and so they they um, flipped it on its head, and they invaded <laughs> Ethiopia, sure. and they burnt churches, and they forced apostasy, just like convert or die kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, isn't religion great? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> class. And they curtail trade from the Gulf of Aden as well. So Ethiopia struggles to have a coast, and so if things can't come through the Muslim ports, they have a problem. Yeah. In 1332, Sultan Sabr ad Din. Led the Ifat Rebellion, which was a, a jihad to conquer Ethiopia. Like he was going, he was oh going all in. Like yeah. Ethiopia is this massive, stalwart state. Like Ethiopia has lasted millennia.
2: Ethiopia is still there. Still <laughs> like there, never yeah.
1: colonized except for like a year by the Italians. And so he was like, you know what? I'm going to wipe that off the face of the earth and put up some minarets. So he turned the churches into mosques. He wanted to convert the emperor. You wanted to grow hat everywhere,
0: which is this kind of mild stimulant people chew in the horn.
2: Is this the Yemeni thing as well? Yeah. they still do
0: today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of. Still chew it today, apparently, yeah. yeah. I, like I, you can't, you can't have booze, but...
2: This leaf thing that rots your, your teeth you high. I think it's pretty cancerous. I think it, it, sure. it, it mm-hmm. kill, kills you good and proper if you chew enough of those. Yeah. stuff
0: every time. I, I, I read, I think uh, the quote that I read was that it gives a mild amphetamine-like high Oh yeah. great, yeah. that's what you want Yeah, that's exactly what we want in the morning <laughs>
1: it, it would explain why the warriors were so keen So basically all the other Muslim states in the Horn Such as Dawaro and Hadea joined this, this holy war uh, Ultimately it was unsuccessful The Sultan was imprisoned and his brother was appointed king And then he rebelled and his brother was appointed king And I have written etc right. That happened a bit And then lots of internal family backbiting Endless battles with the emperor Few periods of reprieve, and again, what I've written here is: imagine if Game of Thrones was mostly set in Dorne. All
2: oh, right, the, the the randiest of the Seven Kingdoms,
1: sandy, and you know, people of accents that aren't British. So I, I, I'm not delving into the detail there. In 1367, uh, Sultan Saeed Ad Deen the Second succeeded, uh, although now he seems to be called a Sultan of Adal. Your guess is as good as mine. Right. He continued the hit and run raids into Christians, and Ethiopia resolved to end the meddlesome Muslim rule in the East, which was quite decisive. And although sources disagree on the exact time and the exact emperor who did it, it was maybe the Emperor David I in 1400 and something uh, defeated Saad and pushed him back to Zila, where he was killed. So, bye bye, Saad, the last Ifat Sultan. That kind of marks the end of things. Muslim influence is kind of really curtailed. Like, there's still plenty of Muslims, but the, they don't have a powerful king right. uh, yeah. in their corner. His ten sons fled to Yemen, which is a lot of sons, uh, a lot of fleeing. And they did eventually come back to rule new kingdoms in the area. And there are islands in northern Somalia named after uh, Saad ad-Din II. All right. But his tomb, long venerated, has since fallen into the sea. So, you know, you win okay. some, you lose some. And so we're back to Ethiopia's on top, mosques turn into churches, you know, swings and roundabouts. The Adal Sultanate that followed had its capital in Harar in Ethiopia. And there is an interesting Djibouti-specific thing here. There's a series of 180 phallic uh, stone markers called stile, which mark graves along the road from Djibouti city to Loyada. They're probably prehistoric, but they are culturally referred to as... um, the stones of gran or guri or gora who is a an important um, character in the next major battle so he uh gets these stones named after him so this last person i want to talk about is kind of an uh, a a national hero to ethnic somalis so i think he's worth mentioning because he was very much Djibouti based okay um, at least enough to get 180 stones named after him and he is uh he's the imam ahmed ibn ibrahim al-Ghazi, mostly known as I have to pick a language um, let's call him Gori, which is the Somali version of his name, it means okay. left-handed, uh, so just like you mark:
2: That's it. We are exactly um, the same yep yeah. <laughs> so Ibn, <laughs> uh,
1: much, much like Imam Ahmed, you were born in 1506 in Zila, and you were ethnically Somali. You wouldn't think it to listen to him uh, no nope. much like Ahmed, you married well to uh, Bati del Wambara who who was the daughter of the governor of zila so that's important because he was an imam He wasn't a sultan necessarily okay. uh, but he married into politics i suppose
2: should should we explain what an imam is versus a sultan sultan kind of a sultans like uh, a, like
1: a governor or a prince or a yeah local a, r- r- rulery Duke? guy rulery like, guy kind of militaristic rulery guy with a yeah. with a turban
2: uh, Arabic shogun, and
1: an imam is more of a religious.
2: Yeah, imams like a like a like a bishop, or a more like a priest. I think. Yeah. Yeah, more oh, okay. Like a priest. Right.
1: Okay. I think you sure. have one per per mosque. Like,
2: oh right, just... yeah, okay.
1: But again, that depends on when and where. So he um, he got in on the governing and the warring anyway. Yes, yeah, so she she married Ahmed, uh, and Bati came with Ahmed on his jihad to make Ethiopia a Muslim province. that was nice of her. Very supportive uh, spouse. Yeah. During the expedition, she gave birth to two sons uh, called Muhammad and Ahmed, which are, you know.
2: Common common names.
1: Yeah. Traditional names. Um, There was anarchy within the Sultanate of Adal, apparently. And Imam Ahmed eventually came out on top as as the top dog. Well done. And in
2: 1529,
1: he invaded Abyssinia in retaliation for their invasion the previous year of...
2: Abyssinia is Ethiopia, though, right? Yes, yeah. for
1: some reason it's called Abyssinia at this point The, the ancient but term for it Same yeah. place yeah. He had an army of Somalis, Afars, Hararis uh, And some muskets from somewhere Sweet uh, So things are getting things are getting fiery uh, he, he actually had quite a lot of success Beating Emperor Lebna Dengel at uh, Shimbra Kure That march And started a war uh, Like a big, serious war in 1531 now, you were asking if Axum is still in Ethiopia, Mark. Yeah. It very much is. One of the most important churches in the Ethiopic church is the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion at Axum.
2: Oh, yes. Flip, I remember seeing a picture of that. It's, which yeah, is it's... the
1: one where the Ark of the Covenant maybe is. Yes. But you're not yes, allowed to look I at that. it. Mm. Okay. Mm. Only the one fella is allowed to look at it. So you have to take his word for it. Um,
2: <laughs> Joseph Smith's and... golden plates are also in there. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's where the Ethiopian emperors are crowned. So, Gori and his his holy war uh, destroyed this church in in 1531. Like that's a big deal. Yeah, and um, that's kind of like the the Hagia Sophia being turned into a mosque in in Istanbul. You know, it's it's a real um, cultural blow. It's a biggie. So in 1541, on the back foot, the Ethiopian emperor uh, Gelautavos asked the Portuguese for help, which Came out of left field. And do you know who they sent? Hmm, I do. What
2: wasn't 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 there like a Portuguese prince who went to Western Sahara as well and he died there? Wasn't that there thing? Was, yeah. yeah. Is this this is this what happens? You call on the Portuguese and they send one of their, their royals to like die in the desert?
1: Uh, so it wasn't a royal, but okay. you have talked about him before, Mark.
2: Oh. Vasco da Gama?
1: So Vasco da Gama's son, Cristovão da Gama.
2: Alright.
0: We should probably say actually that our Natal episode is where you can hear more about Vasco da Gama, this guy's father. Yeah,
1: yeah. <clears throat> Christopher landed a force in in uh, in modern day Eritrea. He turned the tide. There were three defeats against the Adal armies. Retreating, Ahmed was injured, I think, by gunfire. But winter came, and everyone had to make their camps and stop fighting. Ahmed took to winter to appeal to other Muslims for help, and he got nine hundred Ottoman troops. So these were the Ottomans, are kind of the big dogs in the Muslim world at the moment. Yeah. And they're clearly starting to show their influence, and also two thousand Arabian musketeers were shipped in, so th- that's a big deal. Ultimately, when he his depleted forces were attacked, Dagama was captured, and refusing to convert to Islam was executed. So, bye bye, Cristobal. Right. So uh, eventually, the Ethiopian emperor fielded nine thousand troops against um, against Gurries or. or whatever we're going to call him, his 15,000 troops. The Portuguese were more or less dead, but the few who were left were very fierce. And basically one of them, I think being killed in the process, like like killed, killed Imam Ahmed Guri and uh, routed the army. Because basically once your leader's dead, people weren't that keen on continuing to fight. Um, it was very much a loyalty of person rather than loyalty of nation kind of situation. Okay. Uh, and Oh, Captain yeah. My Captain. Mm. Exactly
2: Oh imam my imam
1: And so after the battle of Wainadaga That was kind of it 1543 uh, yeah. That real serious threat to Ethiopia Was was evaporated And he left a real legacy So he's hated in Ethiopia For obvious reasons And he's loved uh, among Somalis For similarly obvious reasons So that that's all I got In the various sultanates And I think yeah
0: Let's take a quick break And then um We'll come back with uh, the arrival of Europeans. Always, a, always a fun topic to talk about. <laughs> Okay, so um, Joe mentioned the Adal Sultanate there, which was, we don't have a lot of definitive sourcing on this, but I gather was, was kind of loosely uh, working under the, the Ottoman Empire, or at least was a representative of the Ottoman Empire in this part of the world. Um, the Ottoman Empire obviously stretched pretty far beyond uh, where the Turks were at this point, but um, yeah, struggled to maintain their influence so far afield. So the, the Adal Sultanate collapsed between 1560 and 1580. Its downfall was mostly caused by infighting uh, with the Afar tribes, as well as uh, the various wars with the Christians, which Joe mentioned, which continued up until around the end of the 16th century. Uh, there's no, that I could find anyway, no definitive end point for the Sultanate, but it just sort of, you know, gradually declined in, in, in importance. There was probably still a fella called called the Sultan. Like, for but... sure, yes, yes, absolutely. So it's, it's not as if there's a... <laughs> you know, they just waved the white flag at some point, but their influence definitely began to wane at this time. And at the same point, the Oromo people uh, from what is uh, modern-day Kenya were moving north and west to find and conquer new lands, driving the Adal Sultanate further north. These were nomadic pastoralists and uh, horsemen and would find themselves in conflict with the Ethiopian or Abyssinian Empire for around the next 200 years in this region of the world. By the early 17th century, the Oromo had started to occupy much of what had once been Adal territory around the Horn of Africa, and the Ethiopian Empire started to ally with the Portuguese, having seen uh, how much they could benefit from modern, shooty, uh, muskets and arms and weapons and, and those sorts of things so mm-hmm. as time went on this part of the world begins to be built up into a, a lucrative trading base particularly as arabs started to trade slaves and other goods most notably to the turks and portuguese oh, yeah, that, that thing we always forget about yeah the arab slave trade which we i think has kind of been lost somewhat to history because of the
1: well, because the, the european one was 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 terrible too
0: yes during this period, uh, Djibouti fell under the provision of the Egyptian Ayelet, uh province of the Ottoman Empire. But the next sort of major shift in the politics of this region is the arrival of the French. Bonjour. Yeah, the French were motivated plans for the Suez Canal and our, our old friend Ferdinand de Lesseps to build it uh, had started ah. to emerge. Um, <laughs> and it became abundantly clear that Djibouti would become a very strategic and crucial location for shipping in this area, which it still is today. The British had their eye on the region and also had numerous territorial possessions at this time, including the port city of Aden, just across the Red Sea, and uh, they were also occupying much of the Somalian coast. However, in 1862, the French government negotiated with local Afar rulers to purchase the port town of Obok, which is located on the northern coast of the Gulf of Tajara, around 237 kilometers or 150 miles from modern day Djibouti city. Uh, This was the first, as I understand it, the first uh, European occupation of what is currently Djibouti and gave the French a strong foothold in this region and allowed them to expand outwards throughout the coming years. So the British did have their eye on this on this region, but the French sort of beat them to the punch. The deal was worth around uh, 55,000 francs, which I don't know how accurate the online... (laughs) calculator that I used to try to calculate the value of francs from 18, 1860, but according to, to the source that yeah, I boy. used, it was, it's a, worth around 275,000 US dollars today. So not a huge amount. This is a good deal. Yeah. Um, the settlement was an attempt by the French to get a, a foothold in this region, but also to reduce their reliance on the British coaling stations in this area. Mm, okay, As I said, they will expand their footprint here uh, in the years to come. But initially, it was just this one city.
1: Was it the French built the Suez Canal?
0: Jeez, yeah.
1: I mean, Ferdinand de Lesseps was French.
0: Yeah. Well, it was a it was a private enterprise that built it, and then Egypt uh, essentially paid for it over over a number yeah. of decades, and now owns it. Hmm.
2: So, and de Lesseps yeah. is
1: just the best engineer available. Yeah, he just uh, shouldn't have tried to do Panama.
2: Yeah. So, from Wikipedia, just a quick research, de Lesseps obtained a concession from. Said Pasha, the Khadiv of Egypt and Sudan, to create a company to construct a canal open to ships of all nations. Yeah. So. so yeah, in
0: 1869, after uh, about a decade of work and four years behind schedule, our old friend Ferdinand de Lesseps uh, completes the Suez Canal, connecting the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. That meant that pretty much every world major world power took an interest in the approaches to the Red Sea and who controlled them. And as we as we've mentioned, the French already had a foothold in Djibouti at this point, and that was... You know, that was just more reason for them to expand their their influence and control here. And I I, I want to mention this fact again, even though I've mentioned it in the Western Sahara episode, but it's kind of, it's still mind-blowing to me. Uh, in 1870, which is one year after the Suez Canal opened, only 10% of Africa was under formal European control. And by 1914, the level of European control had increased to almost 90%.
2: So in 44 years. Uh,
0: yes. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, less than 50 years, you went from 10% European control to 90% European control.
1: It's even amazing how recently
0: yeah, that was. Yeah, and that uh, is, as we've discussed in, in the Western Sahara episode, which I think you can probably listen to for more on this, is uh, what's known today as a scramble for Africa. So And Djibouti mm. was, yeah. was no exception to that. But
1: like that. That's before the American Civil War, Africa was mostly independent. That's yeah. not that
2: long ago. No, it's not. But that also kind of explains as to why the slave trade was allowed to work in that way because Africa was not administered by Europeans yeah. who might have objected to mm. it. Yeah, they yeah. kind of went to un, you know, as they would see it, unadministered areas and and stole people. Yep. Um, whereas, you know, in 50 years later, some people from Europe who they might have actually listened to uh would have would have said please don't steal the population please (laughs) yeah yeah they were yeah they were effectively just a just
0: a resource to be be sort of mined from from this continent that had had nobody sort of overseeing it yeah It's, it's crazy um but yeah french colonial wars in madagascar and indochina during the 1880s spurred the development of this colony uh which expanded rapidly in 1884 the French signed a renewed agreement with the sultans of Obak and tajira to establish a protectorate in the region, which uh, I think we've we've seen again in in previously. We were talking about Morocco, where they did a, a similar thing. They signed a an agreement to uh, to establish a protectorate and then effectively made it a colony. Love protectorates. Uh, they extended their control further over the area. However, the government did not give them full rights to land. And so the, the, the treaty was mostly concerned with the French protecting their trading rights from outside forces. Um, but that's not how it, would, how it would play out. In 1886, an incident in which French sailors for, from La Panguang, or the Penguin, were killed on uh, the, southern side, the southern side of the Gulf of Tadjura, uh, yeah, I thought that was an odd name for a ship, the Penguin. But uh,
2: what is the name of your mighty vessel that will strike fear into the hearts the of men? <laughs> the Penguin.
0: So yeah, a few a few sailors from the ship were killed uh, on the southern side of the Gulf, and the French blamed the Somalis, and I believe uh, also the British for this, and basically leveraged this incident as an excuse to extend their power southwards uh, around the Gulf of Tadura and formalize their grip on the territory. Nice. Uh, a couple of years later, the French then moved their capital south to what we know today as Djibouti City, hmm. and one of their first acts after moving was to begin planning the construction of a railway to Ethiop- e- Ethiopia's newly established capital, Addis Ababa. Um, and did yeah. did that happen? The railway. Yeah. They did eventually build a, build a railway, yes, and I believe. Oh, was it the Chinese built a high speed? One? Yes, the Chinese, Chinese modernized speed. that uh, okay. that railway line, or certainly a similar route uh, in 2017. I want to oh, say, wow. but yeah, the the French were the first yeah. people yes. to uh, we'll, we'll, we'll to them. build this. The Chinese are great. <laughs> uh, no comment. <laughs> lovely, lovely bunch of lads. No comment. Can't enough um, do enough. For any any noise outside, Luke? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. But I have I have sporadically been checking Twitter, if, if, and if, there are there are definitely um, crowds yeah. forming.
2: If if Luke's Wi Fi cuts out in this call, uh, listeners, you y- you know what? Yeah. Uh, uh,
1: we should probably mention a really stupid thing at this point that that um, Djibouti is the only country in Africa that begins with a D.
2: All right. Just. All right. Wow. Okay. N- nice bit of trivia there. Didn't know that.
1: Uh, and also, it doesn't really sound like it does.
2: Yeah, <laughs> the, the D is kind of silent. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So sorry, just I think it's the first time we've mentioned the city at length or it's been founded. Sure. So yeah, the the,
2: the French There aren't many countries that begins with D. Oh, Denmark? Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. Uh I mean Deutschland, but you know, we're talking about the Queen's English here. Uh, anyway. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not that I can think of. Anyway. Uh yeah, so one of the French's first uh acts as I said was to Establishes railway, um, which would give Ethiopia access to the sea, um, and would would increase trade throughout Djibouti, you know, and allow them to mm. to start trading with Ethiopia for you know trading rights and access to the ocean. And then in eighteen eighty nine, and this is a weird one, but uh, yeah, in eighteen eighty nine, yes, there was a uh, a mad Russian Cossack decides that he's gonna he's gonna make a settlement. Is there any no, other kind, really.
2: Luke? A, a rational <laughs> Dutch Cossack. Uh, uh.
0: Decides that he is going to set up a colony. Ba- basically, uh. so Russia had, had missed out on the scramble for Africa entirely. And yeah. uh, this guy... They just had a whole Asia.
2: They had Russia. Yeah. So yeah.
0: this guy, Nikolai Ivanovich uh, Achinov, hatched a, a bizarre Russian. plan to create a Russian territory in what is now Djibouti. Uh, apparently either uh, not knowing or caring that they'll... <laughs> That the area was largely controlled by the French at, by this point. Uh, according to some sources, his plans for this colony w- uh, were communicated to the Tsar, who did basically decided, this doesn't sound like a good idea, but on the off chance that it works out, I'm just going to do nothing and see what happens. Um, because a, a little slice okay. of Africa wouldn't wouldn't be a bad thing for us to... To have. So he didn't sanction it necessarily, but he also didn't stop it. See, yeah. So Achenov seemingly told the participants in his scheme that in a previous visit to the region, the Sultan of Tadjara had permanently leased him land in order to establish a colony. And it's pretty unclear as to whether or not that was completely a lie or whether he just believed that to be true or whether it actually was true. I don't know. I have a quote here from uh, a blog called TowardstheGreatOcean.com. Okay. And the the author has profiled this, this settlement. So I'm going to quickly quote from him here, and we'll link to that article in the show notes if you want to learn more about this. But Russia had never been particularly effective at overseas colonization. Alaska was sold off, Fort Ross was abandoned, and the Hawaiian affair was a shambles. It stuck to what it was good at, which was looking after its borders. Even in 1889, in the midst of the scramble for Africa, Russia had no part in the partition of the continent. Well, almost no part. Enter Nikolai Ivanovich Achinov, a wandering Cossack with dreams far bigger than his abilities. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a, that was a nice... Uh, that's that's, a, that's yeah. a rough sentence. Uh, on the 6th of January, 1889, Achinov, along with a group of 165 Cossacks, arrived by ship and were greeted by what one historian described as a miserable collection of hovels in Sagalo, which is uh, an abandoned Egyptian fort. Achinov promptly named the new fort uh, New Moscow, <laughs> raised a flag Which I have a, a picture of here It's basically just a, a Russian flag With a, a, a large yellow X oh, Like a yellow saltire, In the middle X of it. it And his Cossacks immediately set about Causing chaos Raiding local villages And stealing livestock And just doing yep. what Cossacks do
1: And again we'd be talking about cattle Wouldn't we? Everyone everyone around here would be Herding sure, cattle sure. around the place
0: And Cossacks
1: yes. be yes. like beef
2: Sheep okay. as well I oh, read really?
0: hmm. Hmm. So Almost immediately, the French Foreign Office demanded an explanation, and the Russian ambassador in Paris distanced the Russian Empire from, from this whole scheme, was like, we don't know what the hell's yeah. happening here. I, 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 I don't know what this guy is doing, but, uh, yep. What? Uh, what? The French <laughs> were not particularly slow to gear up, and within a month of his arrival, a cruiser and three gunboats arrived offshore and demanded the surrender of the colony. Yeah. And Achimov apparently didn't understand... Uh, or at least he claimed later to not have understood, and therefore didn't surrender. And his silence was met with an artillery barrage that left six dead and 22 wounded. And the colonists apparently then reportedly came out with a white shirt on a stick to uh, wave as a, as a surrender flag and were swiftly arrested Ooh. and sent back to, I believe, Odessa. Yeah, so in 1894... Léonce Le- Lagarde was uh, established as the first governor of the Protectorate and established a permanent French administration in the city of Djibouti and named the region French Somaliland, which is the, that's where the, that name comes from. That's a name that will continue until about 1967.
1: Although obviously probably wasn't appreciated by the Afars
0: who live there. No. Uh, that same year, construction began on the Imperial Ethiopian Railway, uh, which I mentioned earlier running west into Ethiopia, and Djibouti began to boom as a result of the railway's establishment. Djiboum. Djiboum, yes, indeed. Uh, And its population grew to more than 15,000 at a time when uh, Harar was the only uh, city in Ethiopia to exceed that number. In 1897, as a result of some negotiations with Ethiopia, the official borders of what we now know as Djibouti were shrunk and then permanently fixed These are, as far as I can tell, the borders that we still know today. And Ethiopia and France at that time also signed a a treaty which named Djibouti as an official trading channel for the commerce of Ethiopia. And that's a a relationship which largely continues as well to the modern day. Mm. Um, So, yeah, that's it for um, we have now a French Somaliland and defined borders and a French occupation. Uh, Mark, do you want to tell us what happened next?
2: Sure. So, um, I mean, the, the scene's kind of set there. Like over the, the coming years, this this railway will be slowly so slowly built like uh, i found this like great timeline of this period which uh, as, as we mentioned not a lot of reading material around old Djibouti, so I'll, I'll be referring to this quite a lot uh, but i probably should just give it a quick uh, shout out it's from this uh, quite quite old website uh, it's it's a bit like 1990s to be honest but the content's really good shudak uh, S-H-U-D-A-K uh, dot D-E. And it, it has all these different timelines of uh, different kind of small theatres of uh, the First and Second World War, which is kind of where I'm headed, to be honest. Djibouti commerce is kind of growing, population's growing, and the the railway from Ethiopia is gradually developing and snaking its way towards the coast. I'm kind of amazed the French didn't try to, you know,
1: colonize Ethiopia. Um they, they they seem to kind of be dealing with it as a you know, as a real country, which is refreshing. Well,
2: I, I mean Ethiopia, I guess, it's kind of mountainous, hard to take over, very big, and I guess, you know well, It's a massive empire, like it's yeah. soon enough the, the the Italians try and take it over. So, you know. Uh but yeah, you yeah, know, I mean uh, also I mean French Somaliland very, very small. It's not necessarily like a, a, a very mm. large force to kind of begin with. So um yeah, they they just may not have had the the colonial bandwidth to, to to take it over they were too too busy i guess with the, the other things so the, the the railway i mentioned uh in in 1900 rebel tribesmen attacked a railway construction camp killing 30 of the workers and basically freaking everyone out in Djibouti uh people barricade their homes and people apparently get onto boats and just go out to sea and just kind of wait it out basically because uh, they're so flippin terrified uh, and the population, as, as, as you said, is up to about 15,000, which includes about 2,000 Europeans at the stage, mainly kind of uh, backing the, the effort to construct the railway. In 1906, uh, we mentioned kind of salt pools in Djibouti before. The uh, La Soci- Société des Céline de Djibouti, the Djibouti Salt Company, is founded by Monsieur Lafayette. And they have three hectares of salt ponds, Ooh. and they have windmills uh, pumping the seawater out of uh, out of them to kind of give them uh, lots of lovely salt, which they're exporting all over the world. We need salt. Population Djibouti drops to about five thousand in nineteen oh seven. Uh, because the Franco-Ethiopian railway construction is kind of winding down slowly. Uh, and also the Bank of Indochina uh, establishes a branch in Djibouti, because so it's becoming more and more important as a as a port and a trading post. 1911, Germany demands cession of Djibouti as compensation for the Tripolitania question. Uh, which is like a war that happened between Italy and Turkey at that point. I, I don't know how why Germany thinks they can take Djibouti as a result of a war in Libya between two other powers, but whatever. And just to mention, August 1911, Henri de Montfried, author, maniac, and childhood friend of painter Gauguin, departs Marseille for the Horn of Africa and a job as an accountant uh, in Djibouti. Is this the
1: guy you thought wasn't going to be relevant?
2: 1913! Henri de Montfride moves to Obock in, in northern Djibouti, buys a boat and begins trading in arms, pearls, hashish, and according to people, don't like him very much. Also slaves, though he denies it. He converts to Islam and takes the Arab name Abd el Hai, slave of the living. 1914 January, the the local governor, his name Pascal, sends Henri de Montfride to photograph the Turkish fortifications. At uh, Sheikh Sa'id, which is a nominally French enclave on the coast of Yemen, uh, which had actually been taken over by the Turks and it was be- had been used as a, a coal post, but now uh, the the uh, the Turks, by which I mean the Ottoman Empire, uh, are are running the gaff, and we're kind of we're slowly drifting into World War One here. The development of the railway, as a result of World War One, also kind of gets some setbacks, and I think it's it slows quite a lot. August second, Germany declares war on France. Djibouti is all in on the war. They're very excited. They're a colony. They're French. We're 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 gonna suck it to those Germans. I'm trying not to use any unsensitive terms about Germans, even though World War One against Germany kind of makes you want to say things like sausage eater. Been in the stuff. UK too long, but who doesn't like a good old sausage? I'll put my hand up. So the French Admiralty sends a destroyer. Uh, duple to Djibouti to provide escorts for convoys going through uh, and it also brings uh, Indian troops from Bombay to reinforce in, in Aden. In 1916, they, they form a battalion. It's the 6th Battalion de Marche Somali is formed in Madagascar with recruits from the French Somali coast and gradually it gets renamed the 1st Battalion de Terrayer Somali. So they, they basically have a Somali battalion which includes uh, troops from uh, French Somaliland. And they are a flippin' hero squad. They do so much stuff in World War One, And we'll, we'll we'll see later on as well, World War II. Hmm. They was, uh, included 1,400 Somalis, 200 Yemeni Arabs, and 75 Comoro Islanders, and a few people from Ethiopia and Senegal as well. They are sent to the Verdun. Uh, so, you know, one of the really important battles in, in, in World War I. But as we have seen in the past as with other kind of ethnic groups that are brought into to fight in World War I, they are put to work repairing the roads in July. However, in October, they're sent to the front straight away pretty much. Mm. They're part of the Moroccan Colonial Infantry Regiment, and they're, yeah, they're, they're fighting in the Verdun. They attack a fort, uh, Amont uh, successfully, uh, they, and they lead that attack. And the president, Raymond Poincaré, pins the cross of the Legion of Honor to the colours of the Moroccan uh, Colonial Infantry Regiment, uh, which has all these Somali troops in it, in recognition of their role of retaking the fort. Quote, uh, the citation notes the regiment reinforced by two companies of Somalis overran the first German trenches within an admirable elan and progressed under the energetic command of Colonel Regnier, yeah basically, they're flippin amazing and are killing left, right and center. They're very good at killing the second and fourth companies of the Somalis were also awarded the Croix uh, the Gür, uh so the cross of war with a, with a palm. Wow. and in December, they become a combat unit and they get a machine gun and a thirty seven millimeter artillery piece, so they're they're really moving up in the world. and back at home back in Djibouti, Henri de Montfried continues to supply information to the authorities as a spy but finds running the British blockade of the Arabian coast much more lucrative. (laughs) So he's a a smuggler, uh, he's officially a spy, doing a bit of smuggling on the side. In 1917, uh, the governor orders the arrest of German, a German named Girk, Mr. Girk, Herr Girk. He's the manager of the Max Klein House in uh, Deiradawa, and he's found to possess uh, various different coded documents, one of which was destined for Berlin and the other for Istanbul. Gurk, who had adopted Muslim customs and manners uh, for several years prior to his arrest, uh, was, Mm. uh, let's say, dealt with. And also an espionage network was discovered in in Djibouti for the benefit of the German consul in Addis Ababa. Uh, And uh, two Ethiopian subjects are implicated... And the Rastafari, uh, Haile Selassie, imprisons the spies living in Addis Ababa. Ah, he's the emperor at this point. He is. He is. Yeah, Haile Selassie is around in, in, in this this period, uh, and he's quite keen to kind of keep Ethiopia out of it. But Ethiopia has been kind of used as as um, kind of a yeah. neutral territory for the for the Germans to kind Hang of uh, sneak sneak into yeah French Somaliland Uh the TRIR Somali, the, the, the Battalion of Somali Fighters, returns to the front with an effective strength of 642 Somalis and, and various other um, groups. Uh, the Djibouti Addis Ababa Railway uh, finally opens in this year, in in 1917. And there's this whole thing about the Holtz Kamelich Caravan, which is, is basically... I think like a smuggling spy route between uh, Ethiopia and the coast. They're trying to deliver documents to the German legation in Addis Ababa, uh, but it 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 turns into a huge a huge deal basically. But again, Haile Selassie intercedes and they 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 stop it. Uh, but there's a, a big attempt to kind of smuggle documents uh, through from French Somaliland. Uh, we're kind of approaching the end of the war, so a report published around this time states that. There were 2,434 Somalis mobilized in World War I, 2,088 of which were sent to France, and 517 were killed in battle. So about a fifth of their, their number were killed. So the, the, the battalion of Somalis is, is retired, and they get even more medals. Just more, more, more medals. They get lots of medals. Uh, Djibouti in 1920 is the seventh largest port in the French colonies, Henri de Montfride is still there. He, his uh, career as a drug trafficker takes off, running hashish from Greece to Arabia by way of Marseille and Djibouti. And in 1923, Henri de Montfride makes two voyages to Bombay to buy hashish, which is banned but is legal in India. His first shipment is stolen, but on a second voyage he acquires six tons of hashish, which he sells in the Seychelles at 100% profit after eluding the maritime authorities. Like, he's mainly famous as an author. So he writes about each of these things. Like, he, he does something mental, then releases a book. He, this uh, tale of his uh, hashish smuggling is in the, the Pursuit of the Kaipan, which I think was the name of his boat. Uh, they, they make an investigation of the slave trade between Ethiopia, the French Somali coast, and Arabia. I think this is where the allegation comes, that he, he did some slavery, mm. probably this is
1: this is what now the 30s
2: oh uh, yeah so we're we're in very early 30s 1930 at this point yeah yeah he 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 maybe was doing some slavery certainly other people were uh but but maybe this French guy as well in 1925 the first airplane reaches Djibouti landing between uh landing between avenues 13 and 26 apparently I, I guess it oh lands my. in a street okay. yeah and the French army actually stations some uh, aircraft, some Pote 25 aircraft, uh, so little biplane type things. Oh yeah, so this, this boat turns up, the, the Fontainebleau, arrives from China with a cargo of cotton. A fire breaks out in the hold, but Djibouti doesn't really have any hoses or anything, so they just have to let it burn and sink. And it just kind of, it just sits there in the port, uh, and it breaks up, rolls to its starboard side, and sinks in the harbour. Uh, Who becomes a navigation hazard, but in in future years they'll actually use that as like a jetty, to to be like a deep water like dock. So it it actually becomes a huge feature of Djibouti that they have this ability to bring in enormous ships into their port because this boat sank and they just kind of use that as the basis of, uh, of a hmm. deep water port. So yeah, that's that's just a weird detail there. So in 1931 they they construct a 400 meter long jetty. Uh, connecting the wreck of the, the Fontainebleau to the shore, uh, making this deep water port, and it kind of makes it much more important for what's coming, which is World War II. Mm. Yay! So in, in 1935, people can kind of see the way things are going. Uh, the Italians invade Ethiopia. And there's a, a 10,000 man French garrison placed in, in Djibouti, including various uh, uh, Senegalese troops and and some also uh, Somali troops as well. The 1st Foot Battalion of Senegalese Terrier and the French Somali Coast Militia uh, and, and various other groups are brought there. And we're going to see how you know, French Somalia actually becomes a pretty... Um, Pretty important part of the war. Again, they're exporting loads of salt. They're they're very productive economically. Uh, lots and lots of exports. So in, in 1938, a detachment of Italian meharistes, so camel corps, uh, crossed the unmarked border between the Italian East Africa and the French Somali coast, and travel 40 kilometers into French territory. The Italian foreign minister demands the cession of French Somali coast to Italy. This is in December of 1938 they aren't really successful in this because they, they were trying to get control of the railway through diplomacy and various other ways. But um, rather than doing that, they were just going to try and neutralize Djibouti by cutting them off from Ethiopia, uh, by making it kind of, you know, re- redundant. Mm. So they decided to kind of cut them off. They, they construct asphalt roads to connect the, the various areas of, of Ethiopia and, and rail traffic drops from 700 tons to 300 tons per day. Uh, Djibouti ceases to be Ethiopia's only outlet to the sea. And the railroad goes into decline from here on. In 1939, uh, Paul Le Gentilhomme, the, the, the nice man? Paul the gentleman, is uh, named commander in chief of troops in the Somali coast. And he heads a 4,000 man task force that includes several battalions of uh, Tirailleurs Senegalese and uh, various uh, bombers and, and things that are brought in. They construct uh, anti tank trenches, casements, and a blockhouse. The French and British authorities meet in Aden to discuss the strategic importance of the French Somali coast. The French express confidence in their ability to hold the line against an Italian attack coming from Ethiopia. British Somaliland is, is, is concerned, mm. deeply, deeply concerned by the, by the French assurances. Uh, the, the British agree to allow French troops to move into British Somaliland if necessary. As a result of their concerns, uh, there's arms and explosives were stockpiled in Djibouti ah. to try to mount some kind of resistance in Ethiopia to what the Italians are doing, um, but it, it is seen to be nearly impossible, and Djibouti is gradually encircled by by the Italians, and there's Italian secret agents and so on as well. Also, you have to acknowledge that um, France is also getting taken over at this point, uh, yes. so French Somaliland is is kind of getting swallowed by the axis powers the british uh, general staff decide to stand and fight with the french if if at all possible but if it, yeah italy declares war on, on france and great britain in 1940 and general le Gentilhomme attempts to rally the colony to the free french cause in july with the help of uh his, his various guys but the administration remains firmly vichy so it's it's he, like they're trying to get the, the army to kind of we can still do it, guys. We'll we'll, we'll join with the British, and it, it doesn't really work. Um, the the administration of uh, of the colony is like, no, nah. <laughs> It's France is gone. <laughs> it's it's done. It's over. the The administrative council of the French Somali Coast agreed to accept the the armistice essentially, uh, as long as the Italian troops do not occupy Djibouti, um, and they um essentially kind of try to allow as many of their soldiers as possible. Uh, to leave via British Somaliland to join General de Gaulle and, and England to join the Free French. So quite a lot of the French army, I think, actually does stay away from, from kind of the, the Vichy administration. But uh, uh, French Somaliland as it is, is 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 really just kind of part of Vichy France from here on. Djibouti comes under blockade after British forces recapture Somaliland and they cut the railway line to Addis Ababa. Uh, so the British are still active uh, as an army in, in the area. The French continued talks with the local governor trying to maybe bring the French Great. Somaliland guys over still. They're still kind of desperate to br- mm. to, to bring them over. Um, British forces in Ethiopia begin dropping leaflets, calling the French Somali coast to rally to the free French. The The administration is, is Vichy controlled, but they're still beside British Somaliland and there's quite a few of their old, you know, French, free French soldiers who are in British Somaliland. They're trying to convert the the governor uh, over to their cause, over to the allied cause. Vichy doesn't like this so much, Vichy France, and basically doesn't trust the governor to kind of stand up to their, to their alluring ways. I
1: thought you were going to say they're trying to convert him to Islam. So it was just,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: it's just a firm. Vermo- I was going to go and pack Why centuries. not?
2: Why not? Um. But yeah, so they, they try to convert him to the allied cause and he's like, hmm, hmm. But uh, the the Vichy administration, they think he's... uh, We're not very confident that he loves Hitler enough. Mm. Uh, So they decide to get rid of him and he delegates his authority to General Truffaut. Then the British try General Truffaut. Hey, how's about? You become an ally. And um, General Truffaut refuses uh, even though things are kind of, you know, getting a bit worse at home. And General Truffaut... He basically is forced to resign pretty much under the kind of the same conditions. And he cedes power to General Dupont Um after uh, yeah, Mr. Bridge, after everybody in Djibouti basically threatens to leave uh, <laughs> like they're going to leave and go to British Somaliland unless uh, unless they get somebody more representative of their views. Let's say General Dupont, he, he's he's officially recognized by Vichy and he contacts the American consul in Aden and the British high command in a last minute uh, attempt to negotiate a settlement uh, under which Vichy retains authority. But uh, actually there's so many free French troops in the area uh, regrouped in in Ethiopia and and British Somaliland. They're, they're kind of, they're forcing the point French Somaliland doesn't have the the power to resist the, the allied advance. General uh, Dupont, he surrenders in December of 1942 and General de Gaulle's uh, Delegate uh, signs an accord, and Dilly D he gets a, a free French governor in place, and uh, French Somaliland is essentially liberated from the Axis powers in nineteen at the end of nineteen forty two. At that point, they then organise a, a, a French Somali uh, detachment, uh, a military group, essentially kind of taking over the tradition from World War Two. Right. Sequel. Uh, the tricolor of the Somali battalion uh, that distinguished itself in World War One is presented to the Battalion de Marche Somali as it departs Djibouti for Algiers for training. And they, I believe they land in Antibes in the south of France in 1945. And they, they go on to do a lot of killing. Uh, in April 18th, they had had seven days of intense combat in flooded terrain uh, killing 947 Germans, capturing 100 concrete emplacements and 330 prisoners, losing only 34 men and having 90 wounded. So they were really, really successful killing men uh, in, right at the end of the war in France. So, so this this group from French Somaliland invaded France in in <laughs> in World War II, which uh, I don't know seems seems really strange to me. But yeah, they they're given loads of commendations and in uh, the war ends 1946 the the group is disbanded and finally the french somali coast is raised from the status of a colony to that of a french overseas territory Ooh. so as i understand it that that kind of implies central administration they're no longer a colony no longer just some old weird spot they're a part of france is the view and uh, inhabitants are recorded french citizenship in in line with that
1: Alright, so, after World War II, as always, taste for independence is in the air. Oh boy. After a century of colonising Africa, Europe was thinking, hmm, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Yeah. And the French were the least thinking that. They were always the slowest to come around to decolonising. A significant figure in the 50s is a guy called Mahmoud Harbi, or Arbi, maybe? Okay. He was a World War II veteran, he'd vol- volunteered in the French Navy, Uh, And had also been awarded the Croix de Guerre, the Cross of War Award you mentioned earlier. And his main rival was a guy called Hassan Gouled, who we'll we'll hear more of later. But Harbi was kind of in the ascendancy in the 50s. So uh, Hassan Gouled in in the mid-50s allegedly expressed a desire to see all foreigners expelled from Djibouti. Okay. Which was seen as a bit of a faux pas. Strong move, by, yeah. By the inventors of that phrase. Mm. And Harby capitalised on this blunder by committed defence of foreign communities. Uh, as a consequence, he gained material support of the resident Arabs in Djibouti, of which there were many, particularly uh, merchants and so on. He even appointed the Arab merchant Ali Kubesh as his minister of finance. So, yeah, he knew which way his bread was buttered. He also had an interesting way of winning allies, which was giving lions to govern- governments was
2: kind of a thing he did. Like the Chinese and pandas? Um, no, like you get to keep them. Oh, well, I mean, uh, yeah, but that's like a, a legal technicality. But like, I've got this really cool animal. Do you want one?
1: Yeah. So he gave yeah. the Sultan of Yemen and the King of Saudi Arabia some lions. And so they gave him loads of money. And uh, that was good for his career. Sweet. And from what I can tell, Harbi was kind of a, pan- a pan-Somalist. Okay. Kind uh, of, kind of guy. So he he viewed like Djibouti's place in post colonial Africa being with Somalia, right? Because it's filled with Somali people. More than half the population were ethnically Somali. So yeah. if you're to create a nation state, maybe it should be one that is a nation state, um, rather than the hinterland of a port that yeah that was picked. So that seems to have been his position. And Somalia was due to become independent in 1916. So that kind of Put pressure on So a referendum Was called in Djibouti In 1958 In advance of that To decide whether It should join Should join that New independent state Or stay French Okay And The results were very Ethnically divided And also very Questionable Broadly the Afar community And resident Europeans Voted to Stay associated with France Okay Because They'd done okay And And the majority of um, those who voted no were, were Somalis, who were strongly in favour of, of joining a united Somalia, led by Mahmoud Harbi. So I think he was the... The title, he seems to have a vice president of the government council, but he seems to be the most important figure. Uh, so I think there may have been some kind of French-appointed technical president... Okay. Uh, ...who wouldn't have been elected, maybe. But right. I'm a little unclear on that. There was, of course... Accusations of vote rigging and also expulsion of Somalis during the voting period. So people were deported and stuff. Yeah. Harvey then died in a plane crash from Geneva to Cairo two years later. And all I've really gotten that is some people think it was suspicious.
2: I mean it sounds pretty suspicious, but And
1: other people think it was a plane crash. <laughs> okay. Right. I haven't really I haven't really gotten any more information. So yeah, uh, he died in nineteen sixty is, is true. From nineteen sixty 1960 to nineteen sixty six Ali Aref Bourhan, who was a a Harbist, you know, like a a,
2: a guy like him, a guy like Harby,
1: yeah, uh, took over as again vice president of the government council of French Somaliland. In 1960, France rejected a UN recommendation that independence should be granted to Djibouti, and President okay. de Gaulle visited. Uh, cool move. There were riots and demonstrations uh, that got quite heated, and so he ordered a second referendum.
2: <laughs> I feel like riots so, start as heated. <laughs> that riot really got out of hand.
1: <laughs> the demonstrations that became riots. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly, yeah.
1: So uh, Hassan Gula then became vice president of the governing council, so again this this kind of senior elected position. Yeah. And he favoured independence. He was less keen on the, the joining Somalia plan. Which I think the French were a little more on board with. Because at least they would keep some influence in subsequent state, sure. where they wouldn't if it was a, a couple of municipalities in a massive Somali country. Yeah, yeah. So in nineteenth to March 1967, there was a second plebiscite. Um, voting was again divided on ethnic lines in a similar way. And the result was in favour of a looser connection to France. Okay. Uh, rather than outright independence, but was again marred by accusations of uh, vote rigging. Rumour had it that some Afar nomads who mostly lived in Ethiopia were kind of brought across the border, sort of told, you guys mostly live here, right? You can vote. Okay. Again, again as I mentioned, ethnic Somalis tended to, to be in favour of independence and aiming for an eventual union with Somalia. But controversially, 10,000 Somalis were deported from Djibouti during the voting period for not having valid ID cards, which is a lot, a lot of people. So according to official figures... Mm. Um, Although the territory was at the time inhabited by 58,240 Somali and 48,270 Afar, you know, fairly even, but definitely a Somali edge, only 14,700 Somali were allowed to vote out of the 58,000 and um, 22,000 Afar out of the 48,000 were allowed to vote. So people had opinions about that.
0: I'd imagine they did. Right
1: about why why those numbers were so skewed. And the results met with riots and a couple of deaths and an increased military presence along the frontier, which isn't great. In 1967, this, this looser, looser associated territory became the territory of the Afars and the Issas, which is a new name. Notably, they didn't call it the territory of the Afars and the Somalis. They decided yeah. to focus on the, the sub-clan that the majority of Somalis were part of. Yeah,
0: the Isas are, are of Somali ethnicity. Is my exactly. understanding, yeah. right? Okay, yeah.
1: they're they're a clan of some sort. Yeah, so they would they would share some common ancestor. So yeah, that the name choice I think was deliberate to de-emphasize the Somali character of the, the territory, and the governor was replaced by a high commissioner. The Somali population kept growing, and France found itself in 1975 as the last European colonial power in Africa, which is a bit awkward.
2: Oh, jeez. Uh, Friggin' France.
1: Mm. And they kind of reckoned the likelihood of a success in another referendum was pretty slim. It was going to take a lot of rigging. So in 1974, Hassan Gouled, the, the boss man, uh, the vice president, he might have been a, the president of the territory. Anyway, whatever his title was. Um, he called a vote with the support of François Mitterrand, the president of France In 1977, the referendum was held and 98.8% of people voted for independence Wow, that's wow. pretty conclusive Yes <laughs> who, were, who were the other guys uh, And then uh, Hassan Gouled, uh, what, what's his full name, Hassan Gouled?
0: Aptidon Aptidon, I think Aptidon, yeah
1: Became president of this, this new
2: country yep. well, well done well then, yeah, Djibouti.
0: Now we have an independent Djibouti. Great, so all wrapped up then. Now it's time for our, <laughs> our regular edition of, of Flag Talk, uh, <laughs> because they adopt uh, what, I, what I think is a pretty great flag on independence. The flag features two equal horizontal bands of blue at the top and green at the bottom, with a white isosceles triangle based on the hoist side, so the left side of the, tri- of the, of the flag as you're looking at it. Mm. The triangle bears a red star in its center, which represents unity and blood. Jesus. Uh, and apparently the, the green represents the earth and the, the blue represents the sky. But also I read that um, the blue represents the Issa people and the green for the Afars with the white in the middle representing peace, much right. like um, the Irish flag. Yeah, always true. First adopted in 1970 and based in a, on a modification of a FLCS flag featuring, I believe, a red triangle with a white star. So the, those two colors inverted uh the flag becomes official upon independence in 1977 i think it's a pretty strong flag i like it a lot um, how, how many flags out of 10 luke yeah how many flags out of 10 I, I think a, i think a strong eight out of eight 10 flags out of ten it's it's no, not quite a fair. it's not quite a suriname i think suriname yeah. is still one of my favorites but uh i
1: i i'll always i'll always stick with seychelles
0: the kind of rainbow seychelles is great fan. too actually yeah it's a very unique looking flag but if you're curious uh, and you don't know, you can always see the flag in our show notes, which mm-hmm. should be available in your podcast app, depending on what you're listening on. Uh, if not, there'll be a link to the, our website where you can find a picture of the flag. And uh, it's a good one.
1: The coat of Arms of Djibouti, in a similar vein to the, the, the colours representing the two ethnic groups, has the mm. has two hands holding these uh, gilet, not characteristic knives that I mentioned earlier. Oh, right. Cool. Oh, right. Again, sort of representing the two ethnic groups. Uh, And then it's got a a spear and shield pointing at a red star, all in a laurel wreath. It's very nice.
0: Some people were concerned upon independence that Djibouti would become subject to like a a land grab by one of its larger, larger neighbors, uh, namely Ethiopia or Somalia. Yeah. But thankfully, these fears were never realized. Djibouti strove from the outset for neutrality in regional affairs, so basically not to... Try not to be pulled into into any of these like larger regional conflicts around Africa. Quite right. Maybe, yeah, because I, I think as we mentioned, it's the third smallest nation in uh, continental Africa. So, and it doesn't have a huge population even today. So, is it like nine hundred thousand? Uh, Just a something? small nation in a in a large continent. It doesn't want to. It doesn't want to take sides in any of this stuff. So, uh, internal politics, however, were a lot trickier to negotiate in the wake of independence. Initially, it seemed like uh, Guled the guy, the guy that you were talking about, Joe would be a figure of uh, consolidation. Mm -hmm. He invited members of the minority Afar population into his cabinet. And he seemed to be gathering, at first, a consensus for government around himself, but as it later turned out, was not super keen on real democracy. And uh, shortly after independence, a couple of years, I think, uh, former Prime Minister Ahmed Dini formed his own opposition party, the Djibouti People's Party, or the PPD. uh, And... Yeah, Guled then, in response, declared his own party, the RPP, the only legal one in the country oh, uh, no. in ni-
1: 1981. Yeah. RPP is Rassemblement Populaire pour le Progrès. All right. Uh, so Very positive. People's Rally for Progress.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yep. Moving on. Sounds up. nice. That yeah. doesn't sound like a yeah. single party state. Uh, no, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> so, as a result, the PPD's leadership was arrested and the party was banned. Once right. Guled had passed legislation officially making Djibouti a one-party state oh, those people were released but tensions uh continue to escalate in the years after that incident and and I think a lot of that tension comes from the fact that Guled is a is a is part of the Issa majority ethnic group and yeah so the FRs under his uh, administration under this one party have very little say in government very little representation and of course if it's a one-party state then you don't really have much of an opportunity to change that. Yeah. Hmm. What about the elections? Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, we'll see. So 1991 was a huge year for Djibouti and the, the region as a whole, with authoritarian regimes overthrown in Somalia and Ethiopia, and okay. independence for Eritrea. And the Afars, at that point, beginning to feel the winds of change at their backs, started to think that now was the time for rebellion against the one-party government. Uh, Ahmed Dini, the guy that I mentioned earlier, who had been arrested for forming an opposition party, and was a who was a prominent member of the Afar community and a former prime minister. Oh, I see. Decided that now was the time to strike against uh, Guled. Okay. So in October 1991, the Front for the Restoration of Unity and Democracy, with the uh, I, I, I think unfortunate acronym of of uh, fraud. Oh, they're fraud. Oh, I saw fraud. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yes. Fraud.
0: Uh, led led by this guy Ahmed Dini uh, Launched a guerrilla uprising against the government Demanding more political representation for the Afar people Which is which is not Fair enough yeah. what, uh, what do we say they're like 30-40% of the population They're like yeah. a significant minority It's um, a lot of people to ignore uh, The conflict soon ex- Conflict soon expanded And quickly became known as the Djiboutian Civil War And also, I've I've seen it represent or seen it referred to as the Afar Insurgency at times as well. But I assume that's... (laughs) uh, That's That's a different take in it. Yes, that's a different take and not one that we'll be ascribing to. Yeah. That would officially go on for about three years. Although (sighs) some insurgents, a radical wing of FruD, didn't give up up fighting until 2001.
2: FruD forever. Wow.
0: Yeah. So Ethiopians who had fought in the recent uprising in that country lent their support and Afars from Eritrea also joined in the fighting in, in certain areas. Most of the conflicts as far as my reading went was confined to the north of the country which is where the majority of the Afars Yes
1: made. so that they would they would spill over into Eritrea and Ethiopia as well. Exactly. Kind
0: of like yeah. And in in 1992 French peacekeepers arrived and managed to implement a ceasefire between November 1992 and May 1993. And as a response to frauds demands, the government introduced a new constitution during that period and also held multi-party elections. Oh, I, I couldn't find official data on this, but, you know, there have been uh, accusations of improper elections, shall we say, in uh, what? even up until recent times. So by the guy who used to run a one party uh, state by. by yeah, that's shocking. So in May 1993, Guled was re-elected for a fourth term with 60% of the vote, uh, despite it, oh. it being in the midst of a civil war. But that uh, sounds about, like, if if you're just doing an ethnic yeah, camps, that's that, e- that sounds about right. all these East is voted for him, then sure, I so. 60%. I mean, but at least uh, it's, not a, it's not a, you know, it's not a Kim Jong-il kind of election. For sure, yeah, it's not 98% or something, yeah. So FRAD refused to back down and hostilities erupted later again that year. And then in 1994, a power sharing agreement was signed between the government and FRAD after the rebel forces split. So some some of them decided to reconcile with the government on this power sharing deal and some decided to fight on. Sounds familiar. Yeah. A moderate faction led by Ali uh, Mohammed Daoud entered negotiation with the government while Ahmed Dini, the guy that initially started FRAD, continued to lead a minority. And vowed to continue to fight. The 1990s saw a major economic downturn, uh, partially to do with the war, but also there were other factors involved. Uh, unemployment skyrocketed, and um, so I think that was partially one of the reasons why fraud eventually came to the table, uh, or at least a, a majority of them did, to try to try to figure out like how they can uh, how they can peacefully coexist. As a result of the power-sharing deal, fraud members joined the cabinet and in the presidential elections of 99 the fraud even uh campaigned in support of the RPP so the 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 party that they had been previously oh. aligned against right uh so it sounds good yeah as a result of this power sharing agreement i i i think the terms of this still endure to this day uh we i think we spoke about this before recording but cabinet posts are now roughly evenly shared the president is is generally an isa and the prime minister is generally an afar as as far as i can gather and then uh sort of foreign minister and other other prominent posts are, are split you know one from one side one one from the other although uh my understanding is that isas generally have a little bit more power but the afars are are certainly better represented than they were in a one party government yeah all right. In 1999, President Guled announces that he will not run in the upcoming presidential election. Saying so, Guled. Yeah. <laughs> and a guy called Ismail Omar Guled, uh, who is also an ISA, is elected president. He was. IOG. Uh, yeah, he's the original OG. I-O-G. Yeah. Uh, is, that, is he a relative? And, yeah, I
1: think he might be.
0: He was the nephew, a nephew of nephew. Guled and was formerly the head of the secret police. Oh Jeez. God! Um, which I didn't know they had a secret police, but apparently they did.
1: Well, you can't have a single party state without a secret police.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He won the election with almost three quarters of the vote, defeating his only presidential arrival, an independent called Musa Ahmed Idris. However, Idris was arrested the following September for quote threatening the morale of the armed forces and was detained at an that's undisclosed a, location. That's a weird. And crime. that was the last I could find on this guy. Um, oh no! So yeah,
2: <laughs> they're really protective of their morale.
0: Yes, in February 2000, the government and the radical faction of Frud sign a peace deal. Uh, so that's the last of the rebels to come to the table.
1: These are the okay. people who didn't, co- who weren't
0: Fred 2.0, who didn't give up already.
2: The, the provisional fraud. Yes, exactly. The real, real Freud. fraud. Yeah, got the
0: Ahmed Dini then returns to Djibouti from Yemen after nine years of exile. I believe he then ran again. For elections, but was was never uh, again part of the government. I don't think he was ever, ever elected again. In two thousand three, although IOG continued to cultivate diplomatic ties with the US, he was uh, critical of the war in Iraq and cited a lack of UN approval for that operation, and therefore didn't allow the US to launch any attacks from Djibouti. Uh, the US had a, had a, already established a base in Djibouti at this point. They
1: they set that uh, up around and like in in the wake of September eleventh, right? The kind of War on terror program. I
0: think so, yeah.
2: I think it was
1: around that yeah. time, yeah. Was yeah. to have a, an air base near the Middle
0: East, I suppose. Yeah, and yeah, no, I mean, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but there, there are multiple different yeah. national national uh, mm. armed forces that have uh, bases in Djibouti today.
1: But that's the US's um, only African. Base. It is
0: the, the only uh, US base in Africa, as I understand it, yeah. Uh, the next scheduled election in 2005 was boycotted by the opposition who cited the need for greater transparency. So who won? And as a result, IOG was the only candidate in that election and won 100% of the vote. Boy, oh boy. Yeah. He was elected again in 2005, 2011, and again in 2016. IOG is still the president today, so he's he's the president we're going to be dealing with for for the rest of of this episode. In 2008, uh, there was an Eritrean and Djiboutian border clash, uh, which oh. began over a long-standing disputed border in the north of the country. And began when Eritrean soldiers, I believe, fled to the Djiboutian side on June 10th of that year. Uh, The Eritreans remaining on their side of the border then fired at the Djiboutians, demanding the deserters to be returned. Uh, Clashes continued for a few days, and France provided Djibouti with intelligence and tactical advice. um, Again, hoping that they will be able to maintain their, you know, obviously not neutrality in this case, but uh, maintain at least their, their independence and not be invaded. Yeah. On June 13th, the Djiboutian military announced that the hostilities had ceased, but there was confusion after IOG told the BBC on the same day that the two sides were still at war. Okay. Um, so apparently he, he he didn't get the message there. <laughs> so there were 44 soldiers killed on the Djiboutian side and 100 on the Eritrean side in, the, in this in this skirmish. And although there was no further bloodshed after that point, tensions remained very high for a number of years, prompting a UN fact-finding mission, international mediation and sanctions and from what i could read on this eritrea was was generally painted as the um Body. as the antagonist in this in yeah. this situation yeah they were criticized by by the african union the un security council and but also by the arab league and it's a full relations set between the two yeah relations between the two were normalized in september 2018 formally so very very recently yeah back home in the government of djibouti uh the constitution was amended in 2010 allowing IOG to run for a third term. so was well, always uh, good. You know, yeah. And the 2011 election was largely boycotted again, so IOG still won a deci- decisive victory, garnering about 80% of the votes against one independent opponent. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also, again, declared the, uh, the winner of the elections in April 2016, reporting uh, reportedly receiving about 87% of the vote at that point. Several opposition leaders disputed the results and alleged fraud, Still, a lot of questions around uh, open elections in Djibouti, but that pretty much brings us up to the modern day. Yeah, I think we've got a lot to talk about. So, should we take one more brief break, and then we'll 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 go through the the end of uh, of the episode? What do you guys think? All right, sure. up to uh, modern day so uh yeah let's talk about uh anything else that we have remaining
2: the the american the base is called camp lemoyne and it like it it is a it's a not a small base like it's a really significant Mm. base it's like you mentioned it was their their only base in africa but they have like you know predator drones and all kinds of crazy killy stuff i think they have f-15s based out of there and stuff like it's a it's a proper proper base Uh, and as i mentioned they're doing archaeology as well which is a bit odd well, you got to
1: keep them entertained.
2: I think that's the idea, actually. Yeah, I but think... it
1: but it was very much set up during <laughs> during the war on terror, and Djibouti was okay with being involved at that, while yeah. still being kind of neutral and still keeping yeah. its its good relations with Middle Eastern countries. Uh, and similarly, I suppose the Americans can't argue that they're neutrally allowing China to
0: build bases too. We should mention that military bases from France. Japan, China, and the U.S. are here right now. I think China was the most recently established of those.
1: Twenty seventeen, they set up their first yeah. military base outside of China.
0: Yeah, it was the yes. first. Yeah. Uh, yeah,
1: and obviously, if you're America, that you're... makes you nervous. Yeah, yes, they're they're, the, they're stealing the, your thing. Uh,
2: it it in in a related thing to the kind of Chinese military base. Um, there's like quite a lot of like raised eyebrows around the Dorale port. The license for running that had been granted to this kind of this company who professionally runs ports all over the world. And their license was kind of quite, you know, randomly revoked. And then the license was given to a Chinese company. And so China is kind of running a port, a commercial port, in, yeah. in Djibouti
1: kind of just northwest of the city
2: yeah and it, and it's seen as like one of these examples of you know the kind of Belt and Road initiative that China's kind of pulled together but there's also the, the view of some is that it's it's um, allowing them to create kind of a, a debt trap as has been seen in, in other areas of the world I think there's one oh, of those yeah. in Greece and a few others uh, whereby yeah. like a uh, they create a contract that's very hard to comply with as the kind of the host nation or to, to pay off. And then suddenly, oh, wow, we owe them all this money for running our port. And well,
1: maybe just give us the port. Yeah,
2: you know? kind of, that's how it goes, yeah. basically. And then suddenly they have a port, you know, a, a hundred year lease or something like that. Some, something so nice and fair.
1: I, f- I found an article in the South China Morning Post about oh, yeah? this, which is your local paper, Luke, isn't it? Hmm. The, the quote I wanted to read was uh, just the analysis that. Beijing's activities in Djibouti reflect a mix of military and commercial interests. Yeah. So this dual basing model has allowed the Chinese government to play down the military significance of its engagements yeah. in Djibouti and create some interdependence between civilian and military assets, such as um, in the area of logistics. So again, it's it's much more subtle and complex than, um, than just setting a base, which is what the Americans and the French, I think... I think also
2: the Japanese the Japanese port there, yeah, it's quite small. Um, I think it's only about a a couple of hundred people, but yeah, it's it's small.
1: But I think they're now allowing India to share some of that space, which China doesn't like. So it's it's all it's a lot. There's a lot going on for such a small place and such an important location.
0: So I have a quote here. I was gonna uh, I'm gonna read from Post Magazine, which is from the South China Morning Post, Hmm. uh, from a guy called James Jeffrey. It says Chinese investment totaling more than. 12 billion U.S. dollars is funding the building of six ports, two airports, a railway, and what is being touted as the biggest and most dynamic free trade zone in Africa. Enthusiastic officials talk of the capital Djibouti city becoming an African Dubai. Admittedly, dreams of a Dubai-type future don't appear to have much relevance for most Djiboutians, Mm. 42% of whom still live in extreme poverty, while up to 60% of the labor, labor force are unemployed. Yep. Furthermore, a 2014 U.S. State Department human rights report cited that the authorities restrictions on free speech and assembly, their use of excessive force, including torture, as well as the harassment and detention of government critics. So, yeah, not, not, a, not, a great not, exactly not a great holiday paradise. destination. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You mentioned Dubai. Yeah. There's a, a really weird project I, I mentioned at the beginning in, in the foreshadowing was a, is of a Dubai based construction company uh, who want to build a bridge across the uh, between the horns, as it were, from the Horn of Africa oh, right. to the yeah. Horn yeah, of Yemen. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be bonkers. They want to build a twin city with part of the city on either side, wow. expecting a population of like eight million or something. That's Djibouti demented. doesn't have a million people. Yeah, that's they want to call mental. it Alnor yeah. City. And the um, people who want to build it, it's been, it's been quite heavily delayed, it may never happen because it's mental. But uh, Luke, do you, do you want to guess the, the family
0: c- construction conglomerate with a, a well-known name who are behind it? Oh, uh, is it uh, Li Ka-Shing's company? No. Don't know no. who that is, to be honest. <laughs> okay, he's like the wealthiest property developer in Hong Kong. Oh right,
2: oh, okay.
1: okay. No, no, it's a Dubai-based. Um, the they're called the the Saudi Bin Laden group.
0: Oh, great. Uh oh.
1: Um, best known for their their non-property developing. Uh, Loud uh
2: oh's. Loud yeah. uh oh's. Yeah. Yep. yeah.
1: So yeah, no, it, it's something people always forget about Osama Bin Laden is that his family are like you know upper class, very respected property m- moguls, in yeah. Saudi society. Yeah. And Great they don't live in caves, wearing wearing headdresses, uh, shouting no. at at uh, camcorders. That was a different and yeah, it was a different direction to take. Incredible wealth. Mm. So yeah, uh, the Bin Laden Bridge perhaps will someday connect.
2: Probably won't call it that.
1: No. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Funny that I would rename my company if I were them. I was uh, gonna
0: say yeah. It'd be a. Probably a good branding exercise to rename them. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah, we we should touch on human rights issues. In uh, 2011, Freedom of the World Report, a charity called Freedom House, downgraded Djibouti's rank from partly free to not free. Okay, uh, and it's pretty the, clear. The press, and, the right yep, press and media are largely controlled by the government. There's a very harsh prison system and no torture is officially illegal. Uh, there are reports of torture that emerge with alarming regularity from Djibouti. and That's not a rush. great
1: clause, is it? Although torture yeah. is officially illegal, yeah, it's yeah, not a great yes. way to start a sentence. Yeah.
0: And uh, female genital mutilation, which we unfortunately have to talk about a lot when we when we visit Africa, is still, as far as I can tell, uh, fairly common in Djibouti. I didn't realise that
1: was as widespread in East Africa. Mm, I believe so. East Africa.
0: I have to double check that, but... That's not yeah. something
1: I read about. That's, that's mm. as usual, that's terrible.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the the other thing that we should mention when we're talking about China is the the railway modernization project, which happened in 2017. Yeah, you mentioned mm-hmm. that earlier. Uh, I'd never heard of yeah, that. This is now high-speed rail from Madis Ababa to, to yeah. Djibouti. Yeah, they, so they've upgraded the, the French, original French railway, as I understand it, to, to become the first modern electrified railway line in East Africa. And the project is jointly owned by the governments of Ethiopia, Ethiopia and Djibouti, and constructed by the China Railway Group and China Civil Engineering Construction Corporation. And first freight services on that line began in November 2015. And the the line was largely uh, built and financed by a four billion dollar investment from China.
2: Right. Yes. Great, great bunch of lads. Uh, great.
0: Just something I'd
1: like to mention before we completely forget it is just that, interestingly, if you're into Islam and an an Islam nerd, while 98% of of the population are are Sunni Muslims and they almost all subscribed to the Shafi legal tradition, not an expert on what that means, but apparently it's a bit unusual. It was more in vogue when the Mamluks were in charge in Egypt, I think, and then went a bit out of fashion. When different right. caliphates took over, so they in the Horn of Africa, they have a diff- slightly different interpretation of Islam to other parts of the world, and that's probably worth mentioning. Though I won't claim to uh, to fully understand um, Islamic yeah. legal jurisprudence yeah. uh, to enough of a degree to explain what that means.
0: Just before sports, a little bit on the on the economy. Again, like we mentioned earlier, it's it's tried to remain very neutral. And that has, you know, helped with foreign direct investment. It is a rapidly maturing service-based economy, with more than okay. uh, a fifth of the national budget uh, spent on education. And GDP growth has hmm. has been relatively okay, um, but unemployment remains very high. And the economy is basically all based around its location, uh, so military bases uh, and, like we said, kind of the railway and that sort of thing. Um, you know, trying to. Trying to exploit this, you know, uh, shipping and, and trade hub. Yeah. There's no real natural resources, no agriculture really to speak of, and very limited industrial output. Real GDP growth was at an estimated 5.6% in 2018, up from 4.1% in 2017. But as I said, unemployment is still very high. So should we do, should we talk sports before we wrap it up?
2: Very, very briefly. Djibouti is not very good at sports. Uh, so... No. Uh, they're so not. no no so good lord so they they've never really qualified for any of the major competitions in football they played their first international match under the name of French Somaliland uh in back in 1947 Against Ethiopia Who they played most of their first games against uh, And they lost their first game 5-0 Their biggest defeat was to Uganda Which was 10-1 Their biggest win And they do have a very small handful of wins Their biggest win was against South Yemen 4-1 in 1988 South Yemen I think Uh, In 1988 it
0: was uh, (laughs) um, I don't know if you read this though on football Um, I read that the national team was dissolved in 2017 In a bid to quote Stop poor results what? That will work. Did you read about that?
2: I did not read that. No.
0: Yeah, apparently, I, I, yeah, that's that's apparently from BBC Sport. Is that the the national team was dissolved in 2017, so that will do, that will tell you just how poorly they'd been performing up to that. Do point Do they
2: mean physically so. dissolved? They they no. <laughs> They don't dunk them yeah, in acid because they're very, very bad at football. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, so they're only Olympic medal winners. Does anyone want to take a swing at at what what they might be good at? Athletics wise uh, I know Given giving the, giving the region Given their neighbours Take, a, take yeah, a swing at that Running Running for a long long distance At very yes, high speed uh, So in yep. 1988 uh, While the football team was, was Recording their biggest win uh, They won their one and only Olympic medal Which was a bronze medal uh, In the marathon And oh. this was by Hussein Ahmed uh, Salah uh and he also came second in the New York marathon in 85 and won the Paris marathon in 86 and you know he was at various world championships and swan so as well uh but yeah he he is their main guy but they, they're still uh, his his personal best was 2 hours 7 minutes 7 seconds which you know obviously is flipping phenomenal but uh you know it, it isn't a world record or yeah, anything I've, I've I've done better yeah exactly <laughs> but uh, they they also still you know obviously they paid a lot of attention to their athletics and I I read various accounts of uh actually um, the women's running setup being kind of profiled quite a lot as, you know, being actually quite a, you know, positive thing. Uh, and they, they actually have pretty good facilities considering everything and, you know, high quality track. And one thing keeps getting mentioned is, is that they ha- they use weights that are condensed milk cans filled with cement. I, oh. I, re- I read that and, yeah, this this yeah. kind of, like, account... Uh, I, th- I think somebody was actually embedded there and observed that. But, like, they... they they uh, have a mix of like high tech kind of uh, uh, facilities and then some kind of uh, old school know how uh, for their training. But yeah, they, they they take it pretty seriously. That's it for sports, though.
1: Yeah, I think that might be it for
2: it. I have.
0: Yeah. Uh, is that it? That's about everything. Oh, dear. That's about, that's about everything. All right. Uh, You can find more episodes of this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, You can also check out um, our extended show notes at 80dayspodcast.com or in your podcast player. Now, as ever, before we go, we have to take a minute to say thank you to the people that power the show. And those are our patrons. This month, new patrons include Peter Hodowski, Aaron Brinkley and Helena Barker. Without them and the generous support of our other backers, you wouldn't be hearing this show. Thank you all so much for choosing to support what we do, and remember that if you want to get involved and help us defray the cost of researching, hosting, and producing the show while getting some bonus content in return, please go to patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast, or you can follow the link in our show notes. We just recently added a new goal to our Patreon page, so if we manage to sign up more than 50 patrons before the end of the season, we will do a special Patreon episode chosen by all 50 of those backers. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at 80 Days Podcast. You can also email us directly at 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to help out the podcast and you can't afford to donate on Patreon, uh, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps our our visibility. We got some really nice reviews recently, and yeah, we'd really appreciate it. Mark, do you want to tell people where they can find more about you on the internet?
2: Oh, you can get me on Twitter uh, at MarkBoyle86. That's that's about it and joe
0: yep yeah, and and uh, if you go to time you'll
1: find information about me and my doings and sayings
0: nice one great you can find me on twitter at the luke j kelly or at my website lukejkelly.com thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time bye bye um au revoir nasolave <laughs> 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 uh,
2: you old colonial
0: hey for effort, joe yeah. i forgot to say goodbye in French. <laughs> <laughs> the am